0: Comis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Winkleman. Dr. Winkleman is an anthropologist. He was a professor at Arizona State University for many years, where he studied topics related to shamanism as practiced by early hunter-gatherer societies and other topics related to human cultural evolution. He's now retired and conducts independent research from Brazil, where he now lives, and our discussion centered on shamanism. He talked about what shamanism is and the core features of shamanic ritual practices across historical hunter-gatherer cultures, how the various ritual practices practices associated with shamanism were used by forager societies, including their use of symbolism, group dance and drumming, and the use of psychedelics. We talked about the evolution of shamanism and religion from prehistoric times through the present and the role religion and spiritual practices have played in human evolution. He talked about how human culture is akin to virtual reality and how human ritual practices help sculpt the narratives that form within human cultures that regulate our behavior. We touched on the future of religion and spirituality in the modern age, and whether the use of psychedelics as entheogenic substances might have a role to play in that. So if you're interested in shamanism, uh, traditional cultures, and how some of these early uses of psychedelics and different ritual practices evolved and shaped human cognition and human culture, this is a really fascinating discussion. I learned a lot from Professor Winkleman, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can subscribe on YouTube to see the video version of the podcast. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you might want to download the audio version. You can also subscribe to my Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com. You can get a free weekly newsletter subscription to stay up to date about the podcast and what I'm thinking about. You can become a paid supporter to help support the podcast further and keep it going and keep it growing. That will get you access to episodes early, a few days or a week before they actually come out to the general public. And you can also just share the podcast with friends or family. If you find an episode interesting or helpful, uh, just share it with someone that you know. And that's often the best way to help spread things by word of mouth. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients, including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about Amino Co. is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and Engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com/mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying Aminoco's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see, so check out aminoco.com/mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Winklemann.
1: of Goyas, outside of a little town called Pirinopolis.
0: And are you down there temporarily, or is that where you live now?
1: Well, for the last 13 years, it's been where I've lived, so it's not very temporary anymore.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. And where did you move from?
1: I lived in Phoenix at the time. I retired in 2009 and uh, bought a house here in 2010 with the uh, the one-year period there being a Fulbright that I did here studying the uh, ayahuasca religions, Santo Daime, Salmon, particularly União do Vegetal.
0: Interesting. And so what were you doing uh, before Brazil, before you retired?
1: Well, for 20-something years, I was in the Department of Anthropology at Arizona State. Later, it became the School of Human Evolution and Social Change. So i Did a lot of teaching there, mostly medical anthropology, ethnic relations, um, intro to anthro. Um, Ran a few programs, a field school program down in Mexico and Ensenada for the summers and uh, involved with administration of medical anthropology and public health programs uh, and doing some research then and publication. But since I've retired, it's been a little bit easier to stay on the publication side. So... uh, I don't know if I'll get a chance to tell your listeners elsewhere, but if they want to find articles related to what I do, what I publish on, they can go to ResearchGate and search into my name, Michael Winkleman, and you'll find most of the articles I've written are there, plus some of the books are also available there.
0: Yeah, no, we'll definitely direct people that way. What would you say if you had to summarize your overall sort of research interests throughout your career, how, how would you summarize that for people?
1: Well, I guess I would say is understanding the intersection between psychedelics and shamanism over human evolution. So from, you know, way before we were ever, you know, really modern human beings, where did our ritual origins come from? How did psychedelics play a a role in the evolution of those capacities? How did that end up being shamanism and what happened to shamanism under the course of sociocultural evolution that
0: led to its demise? and what what is shamanism how would you define it
1: okay well i mean unfortunately shamanism is just about everything today people use it for just about any ritualist any alteration of consciousness any spiritual practice um i I would start off by saying that rather than defining it uh i provide a characterization of what were the ritual practices of foraging societies and so, my, my perspective is based upon cross cultural research that looked at ritualists in all kinds of societies and using empirical data discovered a pattern that was characteristic of foraging societies and to some extent simple agricultural societies, but quitty, pretty quickly disappeared after that. So, what is it that I find in these foraging societies? Well, we can say that the, the shaman is the alpha male, sometimes it's a female, but mostly males. Uh, They're the leader of the group in many different ways uh, because they're the spiritual leader. They're the person that has the most power. Their power comes from a a series of experiences and training. Uh, Normally, they're thought to have been selected based upon uh, unusual experiences, uh, experiences of of spirits, uh, visions, hallucinations, uh, various kinds of abnormal experiences, including illness, disease. And that is interpreted by their group as a call from the ancestors for them to become shamans. So they often experience this call from their ancestors in visions and dreams. And then they undergo an arduous period of training. It involves being alone in the wilderness, undergoing prolonged fasting, sexual abstinence, uh, taking powerful natural substances, emetics, uh, sometimes obviously uh, psychedelics. And during that formation, they have a kind of uh, death and rebirth experience at the hands of animals. They have the experience of being attacked and killed by animals. And subsequently, the animals put them back together, reform them, incorporate themselves into the new shaman to give the shaman powers. And the shaman then has these animal powers, including the ability to transform into an animal, uh, uh, sort of an experience that is the basis of what we would call their soul journey, a belief that during alter states, the shaman gets to leave the body and travel in animal form. Uh, They do community rituals. Everybody in the entire community participates. It's like every two to four weeks or so, everybody gets together at nighttime. The entire community uh, sings and claps and chants. The shaman dances and sings and engages in a a struggle with the spirits, enters into the spirit world, uh, eventually goes into a period of laying down. He's covered, cared for by assistance, and enters into the spirit world to journey, to find out information, to contact the animals for hunting, to find out why someone's sick, to recover a lost soul, to take retribution against a sorcerer from another group. But this sort of encompasses the range of things that I found in forging societies around the world. This complex begins to quickly uh, fall apart once we have agricultural societies. Uh, The relationship to nature starts to drop off some, although animals are still important as their powers. Uh, They're doing individual family-based healing rather than community-wide healing. Uh, And they start to lose some of their other features, for instance, related to Uh, their capacity to kill because shamans are thought to be able to kill people. Uh, They have this sort of uh, attenuation of many of the features that eventually ends up being healers who heal through rituals that elicit placebo effects and don't have much to do with altered states and nothing to do with animals. So in terms of, you know, what is shamanism? Well, my sense is that there's this core set of characteristics of hunter-gatherer societies that should be called shamanism. It persists to a certain degree in simple agricultural societies, but disappears by the time we have chiefdom-level societies. And today, much of what is called shamanism doesn't embody the core features of what was characteristic of forging shamans. Michael Horner, an anthropologist, has put forth uh, a notion of core shamanism that he thinks extracts these core features, but they explicitly you know, disavow certain aspects of it, for instance, using psychedelic drugs, or to uh, kill people to use your power for harm. Uh, It's not all of what was core shamanism. It's certainly not community-based. And and much of what is called shamanism today, I would say, is is some kind of spiritual practice. Uh, It may be mediumship. Uh, It may just be straight-out healing. I mean, there are people that learn these practices on Mongolia that have to do with sacrificing sheep and passing the heart of the sheep around the groups, everybody gets some of the sheep's energy and they drink some of the sheep's blood and cook the sheep and eat it. And this is shamanism. And I'm going, I mean, you call it whatever you want, but it doesn't have anything really to do with what was the shamanism of forging societies. So that's kind of my, my view of what is shamanism. Now to try to give a looser view of it, well, you know, shamans engaged in altered states of consciousness. They used rituals to do this. They were thought to enter into contact with the spirit world. And they were thought to be able to use these alter-state encounters to heal, to divine. If we want to say, you know, that this was the core of shamanism, well, you know, the Pope may be a shaman too. But there certainly are many different practitioners today that have these, what were essential features of shamanism. But shamanism had so much more than just those aspects of alter-states, ritual spirits, and healing rituals.
0: So how would you, you know, in some ways it sort of sounds like shamanism, maybe we can think of as an evolutionary antecedent to some of the more traditional forms of religion that we associate with agricultural, post-agricultural civilizations. How is shamanism similar to and different from organized religion in the modern sense?
1: Well, I mean, clearly shamanism was a form of, of ritual and spiritual behavior before organized religions. Now, whether or not you want to call it a religion depends on your definition of religion. But I think anybody who tries to understand the origins of religion without going through shamanism, you know, hasn't gotten back to the roots. Um, you know, these kinds of practices were prevalent in societies all around the world going back tens of thousands of years. In fact, I would argue that it goes back you know, to a million years, let's say a million and a half years ago, we had a form of shamanism that had to do with communal rituals involving singing and dancing and drumming and enactments, and they were done to enhance the well-being of the group. Now, is that religion? Well, to my notion, it's at least a precursor to religion. Uh, Some people want to define religion in terms of, oh, well, you have to have, you know, a doctrine and a scripture, and you have to have an ecclesiastical organization. Well, you know, that's, you know, post-agricultural, post-state forms of religion. Um, I think that we have to understand what were these primordial forms of religious behavior that existed before we got these you know, great big you know, traditions that you know, span millions of people and have to do with you know, formal organizations of priests that have you know, thousands and thousands of members. So what's, what's the big difference? Well, I think one of the big differences would have to do with the altered states of consciousness. I mean, shamanism lived and functioned through altered states. Um, monotheistic religions aren't too fond of altered states of consciousness. They're they're rare, incidental, but not necessarily focused on unless you're in one of the, the mystical branches. You know, you're a saint or, you know, a reclusive monk, but you're not the ordinary practitioner. Uh, spirit relations. You know, the shaman went into the spirit world, had relations with animals that were the fundamental of the spirit forms of spiritual power. You know, monotheistic religions have this high God and they definitely don't emphasize going into the kingdom of heaven until you're ready to die, okay? You know, we stay here in our world and we hope that, you know, the spirits will do something for us. Shamans could force the spirits to do what was needed to be done. Religion asks God and if God wants it, well, maybe God will do it for us. Uh, You know, the shamans engaged in this kind of you know, healing process that was based upon notions of recovering lost souls, uh, removing sorcery, uh, these kinds of concepts. This is not part of, you know, religion. Uh, Even in the early forms of religion, it was more about your soul ascending to God. That was sort of like the supernatural healing process. Uh, It wasn't anything about recovering soul. And then we could go on to the little details about, you know, the sorcery, about the entire, you know, communal engagement. Uh, but even even things like, you know, the singing and dancing and drumming, I mean, I, religions keep some aspects of that, but they're normally, you know, weak, diminished forms compared to shamanism.
0: Interesting. <clears throat> Michael, do you think it would be possible to just uh, talk into the computer instead of using the headphones?
1: Is this going to work okay?
0: Yeah, that works. All right. Excellent. Um yeah okay so this is really interesting so you know i have heard in the past people characterize the shaman in traditional foraging societies as someone who's sort of a, an eccentric part of the tribe that literally sort of lives on the periphery but it sounds like what you're saying is that in most traditional foraging cultures with a shamanic tradition the shaman is the leader is, is actually a central part and, and not only part of the leadership of the tribe, but it sounds like these shamanic ritual practices weren't, you know, once a year or once every lunar cycle or something. They were actually every every couple of weeks, perhaps. Is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, well, I mean, to start with your first comments about, you know, the shaman being at the margin of society, the peripheral society, I mean, you know, that can also be true and the shaman still be the leader. I mean, a, a lot of cultures, like mm. they were scared of their shamans, And they were happy if they would just sleep a little bit further away. And of course, the shamans were in touch with the animals. So they were, you know, going to be further away from the the group's, you know, sedentary location. Uh, They were often intergroup mediaries. They were going to be in touch with other groups. But the shaman was also core to every aspect of the society in, in a very real sense. From hunting, the shaman was thought to be able to tell the hunters where to go, to call the animals to the hunters. Uh, The shaman was central to the cosmology, how they viewed the world. The shaman engaged and acted, produced, created this dynamic relationship with the spirit world, including imitating the animals, becoming these animal powers. Um, The shaman was, you know, a a mediator of their cosmological system, how they understood the universe. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, shamanism, I think, was core to, you know, the global dynamics of belief and, and healing of pre-modern societies.
0: And so in traditional foraging cultures with a shamanic tradition and the set of ritual practices, what were the, the sort of social problems that shamanism tended to be aimed at solving for the group?
1: Well, I, the kinds of things that shamans were called on to do was like, okay, how come the hunters aren't successful? What do the hunters have to do in order to find game? You know, calling the game to the group. Somebody, you know, left and didn't come back. You know, they were supposed to be here a couple of days ago. Where are they? Did something happen to them? How can we go find them? Uh, why is this person feeling bad? What are they ill from? What needs to be done to heal them? Uh, you know, it looks like it's starting to become winter. Maybe we need to leave the mountains. You know, what time should we leave and where should we go this year? So making those big decisions about, you know, how to deal with the unknown, uh, to deal with group needs for, for movement and, and food. That was the core of what shamans did for the group.
0: I see. So it was problem solving tied to things with uncertainty or unfortunate outcomes for which the causes were maybe not, not obvious to the group. Certainly. And so is that tied to why shamanism wanes as as agricultural society comes up? Because as people became sedentary and started having more regular crop cycles and things that were more Uh, Strictly tied to to the calendar. That you know, as things got more predictable in that way, there was less of a need for this uncertainty, this mediation of uncertainty that shamanism was speaking to.
1: Well, I mean, I might partially agree with that, uh, but I think that the other issues, you know, the, the the focus of control and the issues of uncertainty. Took on a different dimension, you know, in agricultural societies, it's the priest that now has to decide about when to plant the seeds. You know, it's the priest that's sort of responsible for reading the cycle of the seasons and doing the necessary ceremonies. And, and maybe they have a different kind of uncertainty uh, that can't be resolved by the ways that shamans do. And I think that, you know, the the uncertainty for priest-level societies is, is rain. And I'm not as sure that we can control the rain as well as we can control the behavior of hunters.
0: Mm. And and so, what is where does this importance of of animals come into it? You seem to be emphasizing a lot that the shamans were focused very much on animals, both in terms of you know hunting, you know how to find them and how to hunt game, uh, but also connecting with animals at that spiritual level, where you know they 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 have rituals where they um, are apparently embodying animal spirits and using this to probably predict the movement of animals and things like this. So what does this tie into the animal world that seems to be so central?
1: Well, I mean, they they were very important aspects of the environment. Um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you encountered animals. Animals were important for food. They were important to be avoided if they were predators, Uh, There were important indications of changes of weather. Uh, You know, there were long distance signaling systems and people that pay attention to animals. Animals give off different kinds of sounds and behavior, depending on what's going on around them. I mean, the environment was all built up around the animal and 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 responding to it. And, you know, your your food, your clothing, your housing all came from animals in in many respects. And beyond that, we have an evolved intelligence for animals. Uh, It's part of our evolved psychology. And so these animals became sort of a natural system of expression of meaning, of metaphor, of identifying dispositions, of shaping personalities. The animals were central to the hunter-gatherer society.
0: And was it more the exception or the rule that a lot of these ritual practices that were used in shamanic cultures um, used psychoactive substances, uh, either from Fungi or or plants in the environment?
1: Well, you know, we don't know for certain. Um, There was not a lot of, you know, careful ethnobotany done in the initial contacts with hunter gatherers. And the hunter gatherer societies, for the most part, quickly disappeared under the onslaught of Western colonization. Uh, Only agricultural societies in general survived hunter-gatherers didn't have a chance. They were too small-scale. Their their lifestyle depended upon a certain kind of freedom of movement. They couldn't live on reservations. Uh, So we don't know a lot about hunter-gatherers, but it's clear from the records that we do have is that they took various substances. Often they were just referred to as emetics, which meant that you puked and pooped a lot when you took them. Uh, In a few cases, we have some good evidence regarding the use of psychedelic substances, for instance, uh, the uh, the Kung Bushmen, uh, the Kalahari. Uh, we have very good ethnographic evidence about them, and there's actually evidence that they used about seven or nine different kinds of psychoactive plants with their Numkau C, si, you know, the, the medicine men of, of their group who had this special energy for healing. So, when we get good ethnographic evidence, it appears that yes, these cultures knew how to use these substances and did so deliberately.
0: And so, how many, you know today in the world, how many traditional foraging societies are there approximately?
1: Uh, I would say about zero
0: okay, so so it's basically it's basically absent now from from human culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you might find some marginalized groups that, you know, have relatives that are more sedentary and they are a little more nomadic. I mean, you might find some of that among some of the aborigine groups, but I think most of them have settled on homelands. Uh, You know, in, in Siberia, I mean, there may be still some nomadic, you know, reindeer herders, but their forms of shamanism also underwent dramatic changes, similar to that of agriculture when they adopted Uh, The reindeer, Uh, a lot of people, you know, it's shamanism when you have these rituals to help the reindeer, you know, be protected and to have the reindeer reproduce and that, you know, you have a a sacrifice of a reindeer for your ritual. This is shamanism. Well, this is what something that once was shamanism became shamanism. But is it still deserved to be called shamanism today? I don't know. Uh, Some among the uh, most arctic groups. I mean, you might find Some, you know, remnant practices, but pretty much all of the the Eskimo, uh, Anuit, all these Aleutian groups, they've all become sedentary. Uh, You know, they don't have that constant cycle. But I, I think if you're going to find anything that approaches shamanism, you're going to see that it's in the historical record, not in the modern record. When these people were colonized by the U.S. government, by the Canadian government, by the Soviet government, I mean, they made their rituals crimes. They made practicing shamanism a crime punishable by death. They put shamans in prison and killed them. The Soviets took them and, you know, burned them in bonfires and threw them out of airplanes to see if they could really fly. I mean, literally, shamanism was killed off in the 19th and 20th century.
0: Why do you think, why, why do you think that was? What, was, what, was the mo- what were the motivating factors for why that particular type of practice would be seen as so, um, such a, a threat?
1: Because it was the core of their culture. It was the core of their religion. It was the core of their spirituality. It was the central element of their subsistence lifestyle. It it was the glue that held the whole life together, and they were the leaders. So you want to incorporate a group, you get rid of the leaders.
0: I see. And so it sounds like, based on what you've said so far, that shamanism or something like it you know, was basically probably the rule for, for groups of hunter-gatherers, from potentially over a million years ago, all the way up until we started becoming an agricultural, we started having agricultural societies how How old is shamanism, and how can you sort of talk about a little bit about like what do we look for in the archaeological record to try and discern that when we don't um, have the ability to to speak to people and we have to figure it out indirectly from things uh, that happened in the deep past?
1: yeah but that's always been a challenge. <laughs> Excuse me. it's always been a challenge to archaeology to try to identify evidence of ritual and religion in the past. Certain architectural forms are interpreted as, you know, having religious significance, particularly when they allow large groups of people to, you know, be around a central place. Um, Evidence of burial is often taken as evidence of a spiritual belief, but what that, you know, Tells us about religious practice is often quite limited. You know, putting you know, practical items of life, food and tools in graves is often thought to be evidence of a belief in an afterlife. What do we you know, find for shamanism? Well, I'll think I'll just sort of like, you know, go back. I mean, first, you know, we see these patterns of behavior briefly reported in the ancient historical records about you know, group activities that had to do with singing and dancing and drumming and the animal powers. Pretty good indication that it was shamanism. When we get back into just strictly the physical record, well, you know evidence of rituals inside of caves is often inferred to be some kind of shamanic ritual. Paintings of human beings with mushrooms is taken to be evidence of shamanic practices. Uh, rock art of humans flying taken to be evidence of shamanic uh, beliefs or abilities, uh, various depictions of combined human and animal body parts, theranthropopes, as they're called. When we see these mix of animals and humans in depictions, we assume it's shamanism. What did we have before that? Well, to me, what we have before, you know, we have any archaeological record is we have some notion of human evolution and continuity with our primate cousins. So basic principle of evolution is that it's conservative, that it keeps what was there before and adds something to it. So how can we find the origins of human ritual? Well, I say we have to look for the patterns of ritual in what are called the hominids, our ape ancestors, from which we diverged six to eight million years ago. So what are the common patterns of communal ritualizations of chimpanzees. The chimpanzees have what is typically a every-night reunification ritual. The tribe is dispersed during the day to optimize foraging, finding food. They come together at night for safety. Hmm. So how do they come together? The alpha male picks a tree, goes up in the tree, starts making long-distance calls, starts banging on the tree, beating on the tree, drumming on the tree, jumping up and down, screaming. And as the members of the group hear him and come towards him, then he comes down to attack them, runs at them bipedally, and they get down submissively, and he leaves them alone and lets them go up in the tree. So Hmm. they have this nighttime ritual then that everybody gets together up in the tree and engages in what's called group chorusing, which basically is a way that you talk about Primate singing, and they beat and drum on the trees, and it has a variety of integrative effects, uh, adaptive effects in terms of protecting from predators, establishing intergroup boundaries, et cetera. So, to me, what we have to assume is that that was also the beginning of hominin ritual, our own unique human ancestors. And what was added to that in the course of human evolution began with what's called the mimetic suite. Uh, We evolved the capacity about a million and a half years ago for mimesis, enactment, drama, a kind of show-and-tell thing, as well as music and singing and drumming and tool-making. But these all came together as a package that was a consequence of our ability to exactly imitate others. And it appears that it was the evolution of the Mirror neurons—they gave us this uniquely human capacity. We say things like "monkey see, monkey do," but monkeys and primates do not have the mimetic mem- and acmic capacity—the ability to learn by observation. Not even chimpanzees effectively learn by observation. But we acquired that capacity over a million years ago, and it gave us this—you know—capacity for a whole wide range of mimetic abilities. And so, to me, that's where the platform of shamanism must be seen as having begun. This is what we had beyond what the chimpanzees have in their every night, you know, reencounters, the ritualized reencounters. How that evolved, I think, may have also been very deep. Uh, some of the key aspects of shamanism would include things such as the out-of-body experience, and I've pointed out mm. that this embodied experience is a mimetic experience it's an experience of the expressed body so i think once we had a mimetic capacity then ritual and psychedelics would have enabled us to have out of body experiences like shamans have so around a million and a half years ago something clicked we became you know a shamanic like society and culture
0: so if you go back to um so I like how you, you try to tie this back to our evolutionary roots with other apes. So if we diverge from chimps something like 6 million years ago, what you just said is um, a nightly ritual that, that many chimpanzee groups have is they come together uh, called usually by by the uh, alpha chimp in the group and that involves uh, various social behaviors that bond the group together that reinforce you know who's in charge and what the hierarchy is and even things like drumming on, on the trees as you mentioned which which is a really interesting thing and, and I've heard that before that they they like to drum on certain trees and they have a, a real affinity for some of these trees and they really go out of their way to go to these types of places to come together as they're going about their movements in their lives. And so if that's if you have that kind of level of group ritual behavior 6 million years ago and then somewhere after that when you start seeing like cave paintings and things, you mentioned the things that we often see in these cave paintings, like the, the people with mushrooms, the people flying, or the, the half animal, half human hybrids. What's, what's the timeline there? When do some of those earliest cave paintings with those kinds of depictions start to come online? And, and where do we first see those on the globe?
1: Well, I think those kinds of <clears throat> rock art paintings around 50,000 years ago Think the best examples are from Europe, but it was likely occurring in this way around the world at about the same time. Actually, I have three chapters in here that look first at the evolution of ritual, second, the evolution of spiritual concepts, and third, the evolution of shamanic alter states of consciousness. <clears throat> and all of these together sort of provide an overall model of how we got from you know, our hominid base shared with the apes to what became the basis of a pre-modern religious system.
0: And are you familiar at all with the work of Lee Berger looking at Homo naledi and some of the early hominids like that?
1: No, I'm not. What does he have to say?
0: Well, I forget the exact timeline, but there's this recently discovered hominid species called Homo naledi, which they found um, the remains of in a cave in South Africa, but what's super fascinating, and I, I talked to him on episode 38 of the podcast. He's a paleoanthropologist. Is this was a very small species of hominid? Um, it lived not that long ago. I don't want to quote the number because I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it think had a about much smaller. A years ago. Yeah, I think that sounds right. But it had a much smaller cranium than we do. So its brain was very small, and yet, despite having the small brain and and what you might assume comes with that what they found is a bunch of remains of many individuals deep inside of a cave system and it doesn't appear that the bones were bought brought there by bears or cats or predators it doesn't appear that a flood washed the bones in there it appears for all intents and purposes that these bodies were brought there and the implication if that's true is that this species with a relatively small brain compared to ours you know a million years ago potentially or more was ritualistically, you know, burying the dead or placing the dead deep inside of these caves, and of course that begs the question: How did they get into the cave? Well, they must have had fire. And I had just—I wondered if you had, had followed that story at all because it, it sort of speaks to how old some of these ritual practices could be.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that burial may have been a practice that emerged long before you know, other kinds of. <clears throat> healing rituals, for instance, because burial is, is a very important practice for hygiene and reducing, you know, predator presence. So, but it sounds like, you know, deep inside of a cave, well, maybe they were trying to bury it, but we, you know, need to have good evidence that this wasn't just some kind of public health measure.
0: I see. I see. So, so it's, it's you know, at bare minimum, you want to be mindful of what you do with the bodies of the deceased simply to uh, prevent yourself from spreading disease or attracting predators who might want to come take advantage of that really. And so when do we think um you know, based on these cave paintings and these other things, do we think it's very likely that humans were using things like psychedelic mushrooms and other forms of psychoactives coming from the plant world or the fungal world? you know, fairly deep in human evolutionary history?
1: Well, I think that we should presume that our exposure to psilocybin began, you know, five, six million years ago. Uh, when we left the arboreal environment and headed out to onto the savannah, I mean, we were very quickly scavenging from the carcasses of bovines. Uh, mentally, we were hunting them, following them around, trying to kill them. I mean, you know, mushrooms grow out of the feces of bovine and pretty much all the, you know, equatorial zone around the world and and well up into the temperate climates, you find mushrooms that are psychedelic. You know, animals can't ignore mushrooms. And given their nature, I think that a very early evolutionary adaptation, a food way, a medicine way, began to distinguish among, you know, what kind of mushrooms you can eat and feel good with and feel full. You know, what kind, you know, your brother ate and died and you don't want to ever do again. You know, and what kind gave you these incredible visions and all of these enhanced perceptual capacities and different social and emotional dynamics. So I think probably five to six million years ago, humans began to be affected by psilocybin, if for nothing else, incidentally, which is to say, we were eating it from time to time and figuring out, you know, what these things were, I think we would have been motivated to eat them because of the relationship between psilocybin and the acerotonogic stress mechanisms in the body, we have a stress mechanism, that's sort of a, a, a an endurance mechanism, putting up with bad stuff, and we have a stress mechanism that's like, we're going to change something about what's going on here. Either I'm getting the hell out of here, or this problem is going to be resolved. And it's that creative response to stress that's stimulated by serotonin 5-HT2A, which is stimulated by psilocybin and the other, you know, similar psychedelics. So I think, you know, for millions of years, we were incidentally using these. And somewhere along the way, they became incorporated into ritual deliberately, Exactly when that happened is not clear yet, but I think eventually we'll be able to show that these kinds of selective effects upon the human genome and human evolution probably began about the same time, long before the evolution of mimesis
0: I see so so do you think that you know the use of psychedelics or other psychoactives, it's just a piece of this uh, sort of a group bonding mechanism that was really important for maintaining the types of social cohesion that would have been necessary for hunter-gatherer groups just to survive and compete in, you know, throughout evolutionary history?
1: Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the psychedelics certainly enhance social relations, interpersonal relations. We, we know that from contemporary research on the clinical effects. Uh, I think they also went way beyond that in terms of uh, perhaps giving us our first understanding of symbols. Uh, We have this bad habit of referring to these experiences as hallucinations, but anybody who studies them is very clear that these are important sources of information. This is a visual thinking system. This is a a mechanism that provides information that's often not easily available to the brain uh, except in dream states, Uh, and that this kind of perhaps origin of symbolism through psychedelics has to be given serious consideration. This is could have been, you know, the original symbols were these visual symbols that came about under these experiences. And then we tried to figure out what is my brain telling me, what do these visions and this information and these things I'm seeing mean, you know, what should I be doing with this?
0: And is that where, it, so when you go back to sort of the, the, the social functions of shamanism that you were speaking to before, a lot of it had to do with prediction and uncertainty. Um, I know you know a concept that that I read in one of your papers is divination. So can you talk a little bit about divination and how this ties into sort of creative problem-solving and, and what you're speaking to here about, about symbolic cognition?
1: Well, I mean, when the shaman wanted to get information, you know, they did the ritual in which they entered an altered state that overlapped with the dream periods. I mean, typically these shamanic rituals were overnight. So by, you know, drumming and dancing for three or four hours and then laying down, the shaman you know, automatically is going to fall into a dream cycle. Um, but a dream cycle that's going to be far more active in, in the sense of awareness because of all the physical activity the shaman just done. Now, why go into the dreams? Well, dreams are a visual information system. Dreams are sort of a representational system of our emotions, our psychology, our interpersonal relations, of our innate structures. And so these kinds of information capacities get stimulated, elicited, elevated by shamanic ritual, and obviously by the psychedelics. So what we know about the psychedelics effects on the brain makes it very clear why you'd want to use them in context of divination, basically, What you get under the psychedelic brain is a brain that has two major shifts in its global dynamics. The first global shift is the disabilitation of the top-down control network. So the prefrontal cortex that sort of sits between the frontal brain and the mammalian brain is disrupted, taken offline. And then the default mode network, which sort of connects to the prefrontal cortex and to all these other areas of the brain, particularly personal memory and our learning and things like that. This gets taken offline too. And these are the two parts of the brain that basically run the show for the most part, the frontal cortex when we're in control and the default mode network when we're like not paying too much attention and sort of daydreaming. And what the altered states induced by psychedelics do is take these two parts of the brain offline partially through habituation of the serotonergic mechanisms, the second phase emerges, which is a bottom-up dynamic in which the ascending serotonergic networks that come out of what we can call the reptilian brain, these ancient parts of our behavioral brain, and project up into the mammalian brain and the frontal cortex, these are getting activated, and they're getting activated in ways that are manifested in an ascending theta wave discharge. Theta wave cycles that pump from the bottom of the brain to the top and bring up with it, liberate all of this information that's our unconscious brain that's normally not allowed access to consciousness. And then under these conditions, what's happening among all these normally repressed aspects of the brain is we're getting an enhanced interconnectivity between these different parts of the brain. And so instead of just the frontal brain telling you what to look for, all these aspects of the brain that are normally unconscious are one, given ascendance, and two, being integrated with one another. And so this integration is like a synesthesia. We're putting different sensory, cognitive capacities together. And I think this explains, for instance, why under the effects of psychedelics, seeing aliens and entities is so prevalent because among our innate intelligences, Our intelligence for social others, for inferring their thoughts, called mind reading, for assuming their roles, uh, you know, called socialization, uh, including these innate capacities for understanding animals. And what we see in shamanism is all of these social modules and the animal module are getting integrated together to produce these animal power. In the modern world, the animal part gets dropped off, but we still have these highly intelligent beings that have some important messages for us. They're trying to tell us what to do. I think that reflects the liberation of our ancient brain systems.
0: Oh, I see. So so what you're saying is basically that the imagery people see today that involves things like entities or aliens or whatever, the imagery that people would have very potently seen historically as hunter-gatherers, things to do with you know animals and stuff, it has to do with their brain trying to understand how all of these... Players in their ecology are actually working. What are the animals actually doing out in the world, and and what can I understand about them? What are the people in my group doing, and how can I understand how to interact with them? And so this uh, this involves not only you know sensing these things through you know direct perception, but uh, using things like mimesis and imagination to put yourself in someone's shoes or t- try to imagine what you know which way the buffalo are going to go or what have you.
1: Yeah, certainly the psychedelics enhance this capacity to elevate and integrate these unconscious modules. And I think the integration part is what's so important here, because what we see in the context of altered states of consciousness, of shamanism, is this integration of capacities that are normally thought to function relatively independently. And so Mm. these ancient spiritual experiences really are a a sense and elevation and expansion of our innate capacities to perceive social others and further thoughts. And we can extend that to nature. So, as you were saying, to understand how all these things put together to provide explanations, and this leads to mythology, the creation of accounts about why these things are connected. Even if the accounts aren't true, they're given plausible meaning to people's life.
0: I see. So, so even if you know, even if these narratives that emerge, these mythologies aren't literal literal accounts of history. They reflect the kind of symbolic cognition that is necessarily involved in integrating all of these different uh, information streams together about how the world around you is actually working, the social world and the natural and the physical world.
1: Right. I think it's important to point out. this is not just how they're working, but how they're interrelated that you know, the alter states and shamanism give.
0: And you talk in some of your work about, um, Niche construction and how humans occupy what what you refer to as the socio cognitive niche. So, can you talk about that in the context of, of shamanism and early human evolution? What, what is that niche and why is it uh, so special for for humans in particular?
1: Yeah, well, let's you know just start off with with the concept of the niche. Um, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, well, you know, do we live in a virtual reality? Well, yeah, we do. It's called culture. Uh, And, you know, humans have probably lived in a virtual reality for millions of years. Um, And and perhaps the most important part of that virtual reality is just understanding how it is that we relate to the environment. And this is the notion of the, the cognitive niche as a capacity to create a model. And then the cultural niche, the specific model that's created. What, what we know about human adaptation to the environment is that it tends to be relatively selective, which is to say we have very specific things that are focused on and others that we don't, including some food things. Uh, humans have a very specialized technological adaptation to the environment that goes back hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. For instance, in one of the classic examples about they're just how complicated this knowledge is They one anthropologist analyzed the boots that Eskimos use in order to go hunting. And they're made from parts of like four or five different animals. You know, there's one that, you know, is, is the waterproof exterior, like in you know, a walrus skin. And <clears throat> there's one an interior one that is like, you know, like rabbit that's more insulation, but it's put inside of a fish bladder that gives you know, uh, uh, impermeability to water, and 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 then they use the sinew of another fish for the ties. I mean, this is very complicated, specific knowledge, and you can't just use any skin or any sinew or any bladder to make this work. You have to have a very specialized combination of resources to make this happen. So this is the example of a simple cognitive niche, the notion that how we relate to the environment is not directly with the environment, but it's mediated through the cultural models that we acquire that tell us how to relate <coughs> to the environment. And in this sense, it's you know everything from our food to our hunting, to our housing, to our clothing, to even our social relations. How do we conceptualize who is kin? We have to have a good model of who it is that we can, for instance, get married to and have children with. <clears throat> uh, any society that doesn't have a sense of kin that I can't have sex with is a short-lived society because inbreeding leads to recessive genes and that's a dead end. So early on humans had to have concepts of who they were versus who others were that they could marry. And they had to be able to keep these ideas together across generations. And so this is another example of a sort of a cultural niche a construction of who's kin and who's not and how you relate to them and how you find them and how you identify them. All of this is very important knowledge for human survival. So for millions of years, human beings have had a deep necessity to learn culture from others in order to just survive. And this survival is the cultural niche.
0: I see. So, so you've almost... You've conceptualized uh, culture as a kind of virtual reality. It's sort of the the set of beliefs and practices that are scripting our behavior, literally how we conduct ourselves in the groups that we lived that we live amongst. And an important component of cultural construction of stitching together all of the symbols within a culture that create the narratives that that script our lives has to do with what was going on. In some of these shamanic practices, that were often that were often uh, using things like psychedelics,
1: right. Well, the shamanic practices help you know put the whole picture together, but also to understand the pieces. For instance, in many cultures, you know the shamans and and, and similar practitioners were responsible for deciding when you could hunt and what animals could be hunted when. Hmm. And careful analyses of these suggest that there were often a lot of different taboos that were designed to protect pregnant females and females shortly after birth, you know? Those are the most vulnerable ones. And those are the ones that you gotta leave alone to make sure that the group is gonna be able to reproduce and survive. So controlling relationships with the natural world was part of which sh- uh, shamanism provided too, as well as the whole psychosocial dynamic of, you know, feeling that in spite of all the threats that you faced, things were gonna come out okay. Stress is a killer, and humans are uniquely primed to have stress because our big brains allow us to see across temporal dimensions. They say when when the lion's chasing the antelope, the antelope is in total stress mode. When the antelope gets out of the lion's range, two minutes later, the antelope is completely relaxed and back to eating grass and has forgotten about the lion. The human never quits thinking about the lion. We can't quit thinking about these things. So shamanism gave us a set of cognitive tools that were powers, protections against these kinds of entities or animals or possible accidents. Didn't mean that it protected us, but it gave us the sense that we were protected, encountered the stress response.
0: Yeah, I see. I I recently talked to the neuroscientist Joseph LeDoux on the podcast um, about about neuroscience and consciousness related topics, and you know one of the things he emphasized was basically that you know our big brains, our big prefrontal cortex in particular, it gives us a lot of our power so to speak as humans it allows us to do a lot of the things that we associate as being uniquely human um you know planning and doing complex problem solving and symbolic cognition and all of this stuff and the flip side of that is that at the same time it gives us those things it predisposes us to things like anxiety and depression for the reasons that you just you just summarized, right? We can think about large, long swathes of time, which is strategically advantageous if you're trying to plan a route or a hunting trip or something, but it also leaves you vulnerable to being stressed and anxious about all of the dangers the future might bring. And so I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what was going on in some of these ritual practices in these shamanic cultures uh, was that those practices were a kind of buffer against uh, the anxiety and the negative effect of states that our big brains uh, endow us with.
1: You know, I mean, I think they, they were more than just a buffer because the buffer sort of implies the state's still there, but somehow it's not affecting us. And I think that shamanism went beyond that. It remedied it resolved. It removed these anxious states and put you back, you know, into your mother's arms, so to speak. It, took away the physiological conditions that fed forward into the stress processes.
0: Interesting. And as we, you know, if we think back to what we're talking about towards the beginning, where, you know, you mentioned that shamanism was ubiquitous in hunter-gatherer societies, and it started to go away as we became sedentary and agricultural societies developed. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that transition and maybe... All the way up to the present day, do you think that the lack of those practices has something to do with things like uh, our tendency to to develop certain mental health ailments today? Are we lacking some of those cultural practices that helped remedy those things in ancient times? Um, or do we have new cultural practices that stand in for them today?
1: Well, I mean, I think as the evolution of religion unfolded, new practices emerged, which may have addressed some of the new anxieties, um, but, you know, on the other hand, didn't bring the complete package of healing that the shamanic context would have provided. So, you know, I think what we have today is an impoverished, you know, set of, of healing practices that are very much just concerned with the biological mechanisms, you know, and not as much concerned with the psychological, social, emotional, and even cosmological dimensions. Now, clearly, psychotherapists differ in their orientations, um, but I think today we're not living in a society that values the connection with nature, and I think that that was part of not only the, the context of shamanism, but the day-to-day life of shamanic society. So, yeah, we're missing that balancing force of nature in our lives. We live in constructed environments. Um, today, we don't have the kinds of spiritual healing practices that are part of pre-modern societies. You know, this Psychiatrist is not going to start asking questions about, you know, what your grandfather's life was like and how that, you know, transferred into energetic fields that formed your own conception. But you know, people who deal with spiritual dimensions might consider that to be one of the most relevant features of your current emotional or psychological dynamic. So today we don't have the same tools that the shamans provided. We don't, you know, give people the same opportunities to enter into these profound alterations of consciousness where we have contact with these inchoate aspects of ourselves, our animal selves, our animal being. I mean, I think the power of this notion of the triune brain is that, you know, you got a reptile inside of you, you know, you got a monkey inside of you, or, you know, you got basically the brains that they have and the same kinds of emotions and social reaction patterns that were part of our phylogenetic evolution. And I don't think we're effectively addressing this aspect of what may be both, our ancient evolved physiological self, and our evolved spiritual nature. I don't see those two as necessarily being distinct from one another. In fact, I think in many ways, what's reflected in in many aspects of spiritual belief is an effort after understanding these inchoate aspects of our being, these aspects that existed before language and that process beneath language networks, but are still a core part of we are, how we behave, how we feel, how our bodies feel, etc. And that the spiritual understandings, in many cases, I think, are trying to get at these deeply embedded aspects of our self, of our being, of our animal nature that are ignored, repressed uh, in the context of modern society.
0: Do you think? Uh, do you think that's related to why so many people today that have like high dose psychedelic experiences with things like psilocybin and and other drugs they often describe it as being um inexplicable beyond language beyond comprehension and yet it feels more real than real is is what's going on there basically that uh you know the in the drug state in that in that altered state you have discombobulated all of the higher order linguistic circuits and systems in the brain but there's still something underneath there and that is you know the ape and the reptile inside of you as you put it
1: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's, you know, why we have these experiences of ineffability associated with psychedelics, as well as mystical experiences. I mean, the, you know, the mystical traditions are very clear, you know, you got to turn off the monkey brain, you got to shut off the chatterbox, you got to you go know, quit paying attention to the external sensory stimuli, you got to, you know, quit feeding into your emotional attachments, you got to take all these systems offline, you know, to get down to something that's the level of the brain before the brain that we have, you know, as an evolved primate. So, yeah, I think today we don't have, you know, access to those technologies that make us comfortable entering in those spaces. I mean, people, you know, have freak out experiences over ego dissolution. They should be happy, you know, and they should be happy that they're having an ego death, you know, that they're getting to connect with some more, you know, embedded aspect of the total being that they are.
0: Do you think, um, sort of, uh, you know, because of the arc of human evolution has had the shape that it's had, and because we no longer have, you know, things that were uh, doing what these old shamanic practices were doing, do you think that's why things like psychedelics are having a renaissance today and why things like yoga and meditation have started to become more popular? or people sort of trying to piece together some kind of cultural practice that will do actually what those practices were doing for our ancestors?
1: Well, certainly to uh, an extent, I mean, I think, you know, we have to put it in the broader context of, you know, societies and cultures always are going through, you know, sways from one extreme to the other extreme. And I mean, and, you know, this is, happens globally. It almost seems like, you know, the, uh, the shift from you know right-wing conservative governments to left-wing dib- liberal, you know, democratic governments, seem to almost follow the same patterns around the globe. You know, it's like we're all in these cycles. So that's got to be part of it. I mean, the other part has to do with you know this exposure availability. I mean, we lived live in a in a world now in which you know, we tr- truly have you know access to global culture and to traditions around the world. So we have more information available to us. But yes directly to your question, I think that, you know, this engagement with psychedelics, with yoga, with meditation, with shamanism, is all part of this cultural movement of, of a much uh, bigger amplitude, you know, back towards an engagement with whatever is this spiritual aspect of our nature. It's clear that, you know, capitalism and materialism, you know, on the modern, you know, worldview, have not found ways to meet human needs, even for, economically well-off, rich and powerful. We need more than just the material side of life. And certainly these things you referred to are helping bring in these other dimensions.
0: So how how did you even get into studying in this field? What, what brought you in this direction?
1: Well, I'm going to have to write my autobiography someday, I guess. <laughs> I keep starting it on podcasts like this. <laughs> Uh, you know, I really have to go back and say that I had, you know, a lot of very traumatic kinds of experiences during early childhood that induced altered states of consciousness. I mean, ranging from the possibility that I was, you know, uh, a brief victim of the, uh, the paperclip Nazi experiments on a military base. Um, I smothered accidentally at around the age one. I was probably deliberately smothered around the age three. I drowned around age four, had a life review experience, I fell and cut my head about age four and had um, four stitches, 10 needle punctures put through my skin with no anesthesia. And, you know, with four people holding me down on an operating table. Uh, and I went into a severe, you know, regression after that, I didn't even want to get out of bed, I, I think I escaped into some other world you know this is all before five years old you know and wow this gets more interesting after that so if you know you want to have a, a reason for it you know that could be a this lifetime reason I've had a meditation teacher tell me that I was a fallen avatar in a past lifetime if you want to add that dimension to it uh, <clears throat> my natal chart says that I'm going to excel in you know bringing science to the study of spirituality so, you know, those are just, you know, layers of experience that coalesced my freshman year in college, taking LSD and reading Carlos Castaneda and discovering shamanism. So uh, in some sense, it all makes sense, but it was a <laughs> usual trajectory or maybe, maybe not so unusual. I mean, you yeah. might have to go to the kind of shit I went through to, to follow this kind of path.
0: Well, I know that was just the cliff notes, but that's already quite a story. Who was that author that you just mentioned? I don't recognize that name.
1: Carlos Castaneda? Yeah. Okay. Well, he was a a renegade anthropologist who wrote a series of books in the 60s and 70s and 80s that was considered to be a, a major force in the cultural shift towards you know, an engagement with the reality of the supernatural. He he wrote books that sold millions of copies and, you know, came to be seen as a kind of cultural icon of, you know, the supernatural and shamanism and, you know, psychic powers of psychedelics, even though I don't think what he did constituted shamanism. But yeah, you know, you you, you, you show your age by not knowing who Carlos Castaneda is. <laughs>
0: So um, so then you were at Arizona State for, for many years as a professor, and you mentioned at the beginning while we were chatting that you're in Brazil now. So what, do you, what are you doing in Brazil, and, and what's that been like the last few years?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we're in Brazil, but we're not of Brazil in a lot of senses. I mean, you know, when we got ready to move here, you know, 13, 14 years ago, you know, my wife asked me, well, how are you going to deal with, you know, Brazilian government and society and bureaucracy? And I said, as little as possible. <laughs> and, you know, it, it began with when I had to get a driver's license, I paid someone to do everything for me. I never, ever presented myself at the driver's license bureau. You know? So, um, but, you know, being here, what am I doing here? I guess, you know, I'm, I'm continuing my academic career and reading and writing, publishing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a gentleman farmer, you know, is, is one way of looking at it. I've got like a thousand fruit trees planted on a piece of property that I pay someone to take care of, more or less. You know, I'm trying to build a fruit orchard. But you know, I guess the other part was that, you know, my, uh, my drive came from many different levels, beginning with, you know, future of humanity, future sociology class as an undergraduate that said, you know, the shit's going to hit the fan, you know, before the end of my lifetime. Um, you know, I half dozen spiritual experiences that set me on the path to go to Brazil. And, um, you know, the, the good fortune to figure out how to pull off an early retirement and be able to leave academia and come down here and live my own life without, you know, the kind of bullshit that I was having to put up with at Arizona State.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you're definitely not the first person to, to, to say something like that. And uh to want to sort of get out of the academic bubble. Um, why'd you why'd you pick Brazil of all places? Well,
1: I'd say Brazil picked me. You know, people here ask me, why'd you come to Brazil? I said, God sent me here. They're, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, um, it was just a, a whole series of, you know, psychedelic experiences and psychic experiences, shamanic experiences, uh predictions, you know. I mean. Gonna say I got to write my autobiography it would probably take me you know 15-20 minutes to tell you the the incredible stories that just you know sent me on this path and all along the way you know confirmed that you know it was actually Brazil and not Chile and not Argentina and not any place else that it was here in Brazil you know when I got here to Brazil you know it's actually at the 2009 uh, before I'd actually finished retiring and had actually, you know, even bought a house. I was doing a Fulbright, you know, and somebody asked me, well, well, why is it that you came to Brazil? You know, so I was like, okay, well, tell them the story. And they go, oh, I see. You're one of the chosen ones. You know, and it was that day that I discovered that I had settled down at one of the points of the spiritual triangle of Brazil.
0: Well, do do you mind sharing the story that prompted that answer? 15, 20 minutes? Yeah, we can do it. I got time.
1: Uh, I don't know if I got the energy for it today.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. That's fine. Um, So, I mean, you're down in Brazil. Have you ever done uh, an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon?
1: I went to a retreat in the Amazon once. That was actually my first time in Brazil. And I'll I'll tell you that that story, that one little piece of it.
0: Yeah, no, I would love to hear about it and what you think about it in terms of like our traditional ayahuasca ceremonies in the Amazon uh, is that a modern form of shamanism or does it differ from the traditional forms that existed in prehistory?
1: Okay. Well, I guess first I would say, you know, what I did in the Amazon was at a retreat center, you know, run by someone who's an anthropologist, you know, and th- there's nothing about traditional Amazonian shamanism in what he does, although he was in fact trained by an ayahuasca who practices, you know, the indigenous traditions of Colombia. So he has some notions of what these are, what they involve. Uh, But, you know, today, I don't think that there's much of those practices left. Um, If you look at the kind of traditions among the vegetalistas of Peru, you'll find something that's relatively close to shamanism in some respects, although uh, in others it's not, but it does have some of those elements. Uh, On the other hand, I mean, people will call you know some of the ayahuasca churches santo daime they'll call that you know oh this is you know ayahuasca shamanism but if you look at you know how the padrinos are formed and how they practice i mean you know they don't go through a death and rebirth experiences by necessity they don't go out in the wilderness seeking powers from animals you know their power comes from praying to jesus and mary and god and the saints you know they don't engage in in soul recovery for the most part you know they're doing other kinds of healing Um, You know, they're not thought to be sorcerers or thought to be able to kill people. I mean, you know, what is involved in ayahuasca healing today with these churches, you know, maybe deserves a a special term, uh, but I don't think it, you know, really reflects in any significant way the dynamics of shamanism.
0: I see. Yeah, I mean, you you emphasize a lot this this idea of really connecting with nature and connecting with uh, animals. And, you know, in the cave paintings, you can see all those human animal hybrids. Uh, by coincidence, I re- recently watched the movie, uh, The Northmen. Have you seen that? No. There, there's a lot of depictions of basically shamanic practice in that movie where people, you know, are are becoming wolves and acting out things uh, uh, like animals. And I was just wondering if you saw it and you thought that was a, a reasonably good depiction.
1: No, I, I, one of the things that I missed as a child, although I didn't really miss it, was television. I didn't have a television as a child. I never learned to watch television, and I, I, I can't even watch videos. They're just too slow for me compared to the written words. So, hmm. Interesting. one of the cultural anomalies. Thanks to my mother and father, who thought it was just a bunch of garbage, and I'd be better off reading. So that's what I did. <laughs>
0: Well, um, I was I was intrigued by your notion. Uh, you said earlier that you know people often ask the question, uh, you know, is it possible we're, we're living in a simulation? And, and you said yes. It's called culture. And I would love if you could sp- expand a little bit more on this notion of uh, culture as a kind of virtual reality, or culture as a, a a scripting mechanism that effectively programs human behavior and and where that comes from.
1: Well, I mean, there's been you know a long-standing tradition in anthropology uh, of sort of trying to weave our way between the concepts of, you know, linguistic relativism and linguistic determinism. Mm. But it begins with the idea that, you know, language is the medium through which we know and experience the world. Trying to experience the world apart from words is one of these, you know, lifetime challenges of meditative traditions, trying to get away from – this network of signification that defines for us not only what's out there, but you know how it's related. And so, language is the most fundamental way in which our reality is created, our understanding of what out, is out there is formed. Um, it, it's such a key aspect of modern consciousness that there are philosophical traditions that debate whether or not you can even have consciousness without language. And that is how deeply embedded in the human psyche languages understood to be to many people. So, you know, can we perceive things outside of our language systems? Certainly, you know, we can come up with little examples of that, but it's far more easy to show examples of how fundamentally and powerfully language forms our basic conceptualization of what's out there in the world to even be known by human beings. And so this is the the beginning of this, you know, virtualization of the world. We understand the world through our language. I guess, you know, the the next level would be, you know, we understand the world through our personal history, through our habits of conceptualization and labeling and, you know, attributing meaning and significance to what it is that we recognize in the language system. That's another level in which, you know, a virtual reality is created. A woman's on an elevator feeling happy after lunch and a black man gets on and she's clutching her purse over in the corner without even thinking about it. I mean, she's got this network of signification that, you know, she can't even rationally think about the black man in the business suit with a diamond ring. All she sees is the black guy getting on the elevator and it triggers a deep, you know, conceptual framework that was probably caused by some trauma or fear in the past. We go beyond that just to our you know, our, our, our unconscious, how our unconscious perceives and processes the world. And we have this very complex brain that's constantly receiving all kinds of information and making decisions about it. And hardly any of this information ever makes it into consciousness, but it still will be driving our decision-making processes. So modern cognitive neuroscience can monitor various aspects of our brain and tell us that, you know, the unconscious brain made the decision a couple seconds before the conscious brain says, okay, I know, and says something. Uh, we don't get much information. And, and just to drive this point home with one of my favorite examples, you know, before I say, how does your butt feel right now? You probably had no idea about how your butt was feeling unless you, you know, you're sitting on a tack or you got hemorrhoids, okay? The butt sensations are always there but they're not part of consciousness, but that's, you know, part of the levels of information processing that shapes and forms consciousness. And then we get down to our sensory systems. Uh, I think that modern science will tell you that we probably as a human, you know, sensory organ, you know, with all of our senses can only pick up about 5% of all the electromagnetic vibrational you know, light, acoustic energy that's available out there. We only got a very slim slice of what reality is to work with to start with. So all of these are basically, you know, the limiting factors between, you know, what's out there and what's right here in consciousness. That's the virtual levels of virtual reality. And we actually spell this out in this book, Supernatural as Natural. I'll come back to it later when you have another question. But we talk about, you know, how understanding reality really is these series of limitations that have been placed upon us. And in many cultures, religion was one of those. Today, people often, you know, use science in much the same way. But it's also, you know, a limiting system of beliefs that confines what we're even willing to consider as possible explanations of what it is we're experiencing.
0: So, you know, as... With everything that you just said in mind, you know, as we think about again the arc of human evolution, as we went from roaming bands of hunter gatherers uh, foraging uh, out in the wilderness, deeply connected to nature with these shamanic ritual practices uh, as the kind of glue holding the social structure together, as we became sedentary and we developed agriculture and civilization grew and grew into what it is today, as we developed science and technology and as you know the digital world continues to bloom in front of us and and the way information flows changes um when you think about all of that arc of human evolution going from shamanism to uh early religions um to the monotheistic religions and the present day religions that we have today what do you see as like the future of religious and spiritual practice. Do you have a sense of how that might evolve given how uh, technology and society are changing or, or do we just have to kind of hold on and, and wait and see?
1: Well, it's, you know, I think very significant to recognize the role of religion in human evolution. There's a large cadre of evolutionary psychologists now that really feel like, you know, religion was a key element in terms of human evolution. And that, you know, it took different forms in different places. Most of them don't push it back to shamanism. Most of them start with the notion of monotheistic gods. Uh, If we, you know, go back to what was the case before monotheistic gods, well, you know, every tribe, every chiefdom had their own god. And most of the cases and tribes and chiefdoms is that these were the ancestors. The ancestors were the gods. So it's kind of hard to integrate people if every group has its own gods. So having a single common monotheistic God was a powerful integrative mechanism for diverse peoples, diverse cultures, diverse languages, uh, that, you know, was in a sense an umbrella. So the good question is, you know, how important has religion been in human evolution? Well, I think it was, you know, the core in the evolution of humans becoming humans through shamanism, I think it was, you know, a core aspect of the agricultural revolution. I think, you know, it's a significant part of ancestor traditions that gave us agriculture. So the ancestors became our gods and protected and guided us. Uh, at the next level, we're talking about, you know, mega kinship groups that are all des- descended from ancestors. Uh, major forces of social evolution have been recognizing kinship, and it's recognized through descendant from an ancestor God. Then we get to the monotheistic religions that are thought to be essential to moral systems of modern societies. Uh, but we can see today that, you know, the capacity of the monotheistic systems to integrate human beings has reached their limit. Okay, you know, Muslims are not going to become, you know, Catholics, Catholics are not going to become Baptists, Baptists are not going to become Lutherans, and you know. The Buddhists may accept us all, but, you know, the Hindus aren't going to accept any of this. So we are in a system today in which, you know, this level of or the capacity for integration seems to have reached its limit. How do we get beyond that? You know, I think is is an important question. And, you know, we may have to ask first whether or not religion in all of its forms has already exhausted its potentials for integrating human beings. Or whether there's an additional form of religion that will enable this. Um, I'll, I'll just throw an off-the-cuff comment. Uh, you know, maybe it will take the extraterrestrials to get us all behind the same God, but I don't think that we're gonna go off and become extraterrestrial, you know, fa- faithful and followers. But who knows? We probably were in the past. In fact, I think that you know, perhaps a number of religions in the past really were. You know, extraterrestrially inspired practices in order to more effectively organize and exploit human populations. You know, and I take this back to, you know, the, the ancient Sumerians and you know the, the gods of them of, of their era. But you know, for the future, what's is there a possibility that religious belief or practice will integrate us all? I only see one possibility here, Nick. And I think the possibility has to do with entheogenic religion. And, you know, what we know about the psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin in particular, is that they objectively induce mystical experiences. They can produce the kind of experiences that monks may spend several lifetimes trying to achieve. You know, I think that there's good reason to think that many of the Buddhist texts that talk about, you know, in one lifetime enlightenment, we're talking about the use of psychedelic mushrooms. So... This provides for me, you know, two possible avenues through which the future of religion may in fact provide evolutionary potentials for humanity. One would be through creating people who are more compassionate, open-minded, who've had eagle-the solution, who've experienced, you know, unity with Godhead, who've had all of these different kinds of religious experiences. Um, you know, the second path may be through being able to bring together people of different religions. For decades, I thought, man, we ought to take the leadership of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and, you know, Israeli leadership and, you know, their rabbis and make them have, a you know, a series of two-week-long ayahuasca retreats together. And, you know, have them experience this, have them experience it together, have them try to begin to work out their differences. You know, maybe you know, some kind of psychedelic, you know, spirituality can help humanity overcome these differences. And then the third point I'd make about this is, you know, there's been a long standing tradition of the entheogenic origins of Christianity. I mean, John Allegro's book, you know, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross postulated that there were, in fact, Amanita cults at the basis of Christianity. Carl Ruck, Mark Hoffman, their collaborators, have made very elaborate and well-detailed arguments about the entheogenic origins of early Christianity. Uh, Murkowski's immortality key sort of brings in a a reinforcement of this entheogenic origins of the Greek traditions and suggests that maybe it wasn't just Amanita Muscaria, but they eventually figured out an ayahuasca-like combination or some way to detoxify ergot alkaloids. So from there, you know, we can see a continuing entheogenic tradition in Christianity. Jerry Brown's The Psychedelic Gospels, you know, points to all of this different kind of well-established, you know, Christian iconography, um, architecture, painting that clearly shows Amanita in psychedelic mushrooms. Um, there's some evidence that there's probably also entheogen use in Islamic traditions Uh, Clearly, the Buddhist traditions have uh, at least ancient entheogenic origins. In fact, I think it's probably a well-repressed secret in India that entheogenic traditions are still being practiced. The Hindu traditions related to the Soma were probably replaced by traditions related to uh, Salasabi Kubensis, the purple-blue-throated Shiva of, you know, uh, 600 B.C., Mm. Um, my, my, you know, research recently in India has found all these temples with mushrooms all over the temples, including on the thresholds. So your listeners can go to my research gate site, and I've got two articles there that talk about entheomycology in of India. I mean, I think that, you know, when we look at around the world, we're going to find that all of the major religions have entheogenic elements at their origins, perhaps even entheogenic origins. So if we get back to our own theogenic roots as individual practitioners of various religions, will this create a foundation from which we can see our commonality and similarity with people of other religious faiths? And Tom Roberts proposes that, you know, we really haven't seen the major religious reformation yet. You know, the Protestant Reformation, he says, will be nothing compared to the entheogenic reformation of religions. And this is emerging. There are various groups out there now among contemporary religious groups. Ligare.org is one group of uh, rabbis, priests, ministers, who have begun to engage in theogenic use. So maybe there is a hope that an entheogenic religion provide some basis by which humanity will see a commonality. Um, sounds like a long shot, but I can't see another path. You know.
0: Well, Michael, I mean, you, you've you've shared a lot of interesting stuff already, and I think there's a lot more we could talk about. Um, do you want to just describe for people where they can read more about your work or any other books or resources that they that might get people down a path to learning more about some of these topics?
1: Okay. Well, you can start with my book, Shamanism, A Biopsychosocial Paradigm of Consciousness and Healing. Make sure you get the 2010 edition. I just totally rewrote the whole thing except 15 pages when I did it. So don't go read the 2000 version. Um, I've laid out some of my ideas in this book I mentioned earlier, Supernatural as Natural with John Baker. It's a broader view of the biological bases and origins of religion and how it is that our own evolution as human beings went through religion and and raises the question of whether or not we've reached the limits by which religion will allow us to evolve. doesn't get into the psychedelic hypotheses there. Uh, 2019, I have two things. Um, One is this book, The Supernatural After the Neural Turn, in which we bring together in an edited book a lot of different perspectives to substantiate the notion that religion was part of our evolution, that it played an important role, and that probably because our innate psychology, our evolved psychology, was created through ritual, through shamanism, through spiritual practices, we have to understand that this is part of our human nature. Now, what you want to interpret about that part of our human nature is a different issue. A lot of people, particularly with the kinds of things in this supernatural after the neural turn, say, well, you're just being, you know, a simple materialist. You're just reducing spirituality to a bunch of biological processes. Well, you know, there, there may be a, a extent to which that kind of accusation is true. I mean, if, if I say, you know, you can get, you know, a spiritual experience and see God taking psilocybin mushrooms and it doesn't make any difference what ritual you do or don't use, well, I'm pretty much talking about God in a pill, um, uh, But at the same time, I think we can go beyond that. And I'm gonna do this by virtue of a metaphor. I think it's very useful to sort of compare the human brain to a television set and human experiences to different channels on the TV, different tunings of the TV. So if we use this model for my materialist defense, if you will, what I'm really concerned with is you know, what we got to do with the television set to get the signal, to understand the message, to see the programming. And we have to tune the set in a certain way. And shamanism and drumming and singing and chanting and psychedelics are all technologies for tuning the television set. Are they also the technologies that produce the programming? Well, in the case of drumming and dancing and singing, probably not. In the case of psychedelics, You know, there's a lot of speculation out there about just what it is that psychedelics do to our brains and, you know, what kind of information they make available to us. Uh, You know, I know a lot of times people will say, well, you know, hallucinations are just things your brain made up. And other people say, well, yeah, but, you know, the material there wasn't part of my prior experience. It was totally novel, you know. And then other people, then I would respond and say, yeah, but there's a lot of novels out there that, you know, display Incredible worlds that have never been thought of before, and they were invented by a human being, presumably. So, just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean we can't invent it. But I would say that we have to at least, you know, keep open the possibility that what we perceive in spiritual states and psychedelic visions and other kinds of visionary experiences are, on one hand, related to how we tune the television set our brain and ritual and alter states and psychedelics are part of the tuning, and then the other part is the signal. And We should at least be agnostic about the nature of the signal and where it comes from until we've done, you know, more research to understand these kinds of experiences and and their phenomenal nature and and the information that they may make available. But uh, to sort of go back to my materialist side, you know, people talk about, well, You know, they had this DMT experience and they saw, you know, these supernatural beings and God and these powerful entities and these extraterrestrials. And, you know, they communicated all this important information. And and my response to some of the leading figures in this area is, okay, let's impose the kind of controls that they use in parapsychology research. And let's see if any interesting information. um, But, you know, you can't just take people's stories as proof of what's external reality. We don't see reality as it is. And I'll just drive this point home with a, another example, a rainbow. You and I can stand on my deck and agree that there's a rainbow between us and the city. And we can tell you know where it starts and where it ends and how well you can see it. And we can even tell sometimes it's a double rainbow. But guess what? It's not out there. There is no rainbow there. Okay, it doesn't exist out there. We can agree that we see it there, but it's not there. It's a experience produced by the properties of our visual system and water droplets in the air and the refraction of light. It has to do with the physics of light and the physics of the eye. So just because you see something and somebody else agrees with you that it's out there, doesn't mean it's there. And I think we should take that kind of healthy skepticism into trying to understand the nature of psychedelic entity experiences.
0: All right. Well, Michael Winkleman, uh, thank you for your time. This has been fascinating and I hope to talk to you again at some point.
1: All right. Thank you. Good day.